Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to uh, another FS Club seminar. Uh, today is uh, one of my favorite subjects, which is uh, big lessons from small nations. And actually, if I can be frank, uh, one of my favorite books, um, I've got it here in front of me, uh, uh, by our author, uh, James Briding. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Xian, and it's my privilege to be chairing a chunky number of these webinars that we're holding on everything to do with technology and financial services. I was particularly interested in, in hosting this one uh, because I think it's a time when we've got an opportunity to learn a lot. And one of the great things about our sponsors who are listed here before you is that they come from all sorts of places, including uh, several of the countries that uh, James is gonna touch on, uh, for example, you know, Ireland. And we're gonna be talking today about the things that we can learn. And I think COVID-19 gives us an opportunity to put a bit of oomph behind it. The package today is uh, basically that uh, I'm going to get out of your way as quickly as I can. I'm going to give James uh, 20 to 25 minutes uh, to summarize uh, his book, but more importantly, to speculate on what the observations in his book uh, mean for the future. Now, uh, James is, uh, is interesting. You can find a lot of details about him on the website where you registered. But uh, J James and I have known each other, believe it or not, since uh, high school, uh, back in the uh, early mid-70s. Obviously, uh, we're, we were a year apart, uh, and that's it's very clear that I'm the younger one because I've got more hair, uh, but I won't, I won't go there. <laughs> and we stayed in touch over the years as I've, I've watched his career with great interest. And while he's published a number of books, uh, most notably, in fact, a, quite a popular one, if you're Swiss, called Made in Switzerland, where he points out the advantages of Switzerland, uh, James has moved wider uh, than Switzerland and really looking for deeper lessons. And as he points out, Denmark has been at the forefront of renewable energy, ranging from bikes to wind turbines. Ireland has the most successful record attracting foreign companies and investment. Singapore, the most cost-effective healthcare. Israel, the most enviable startup scene outside of Silicon Valley. Netherlands at the forefront of agriculture technology. Finland with the best primary education system in the world. Sweden for gender equality. And Switzerland, the highest density of leading multinationals in the world. Now he's going to be going through all of that. But just before he does, I wanted to point out a couple of things from us. Um, and that's it. Uh, we took and had a good look at these tiny little countries. Remember, the, the largest country here is a population of 12 million. And what you see is they're also very strong global financial centers over time. That's Singapore, that tiny little island state up there at the top solid blue line, and many of the others uh, coming along. And when we look at another topic that James is going to touch on, which is uh, green or the environment and climate change, again, we find that they rank pretty good overall as a group for depth. That's their ability, uh, sorry, that's their commitment to it. And they rank equally pretty good, in fact, very good on the quality of financial advice that they provide. So there's every reason to be interested in what James is going to talk about. I certainly am. I commend this book to you. But James, at the moment, if I may, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael, and um, good afternoon, and thank you for attending. So I thought what I'd do is just sort of run through the sort of the premise of the book and, and the overarching thesis, and then talk a little bit about uh, this new initiative we have called S8, and then we'll have time for questions. So that's basically the, the structure of the presentation. We'll go to the next one. 
yeah, we. So I, I had a fellowship from Harvard, uh, which was quite helpful in terms of opening doors for research. And as Michael mentioned, I had a book. Uh, my prior book was based on, you know, what sort of constituted success in Switzerland. It was ranked the most competitive country in the world for about eight years in a row. So, next. So this is the book. We have um, actually two different covers of the book, but we've received some pretty decent endorsements. Uh, Steve Pinker, Lars Kohler runs the World Scout Federation, etc. James, could you speak up just a little bit, please? Yeah. Next. So I I, I looked at these countries, um, you know, in a way the the way a doctor would sort of diagnose a patient, and if you were you know sort of looking at the health of a country, you'd look at different parameters, things like disposable income, to what extent it can generate wealth, which is very important, um, PISA scores in education, Gini coefficients, uh, all the way through to, you know, how happy the people are. And, and when you looked at these, um, all these different metrics, uh, you kept finding the same countries appear over and over again. So, the next. So, for example, if you, know, if you look at the most competitive countries in the world, nine, nine out of ten of them have populations which are less than 20 million. If you look at the, the UN Human Development Ranking, 15 out of 20, uh, 11 of the top 15 per capita income countries are small nations, and then all the countries in the top 10 are, in terms of happiness, um, um, happier than, than larger nations. So each one of these countries has sort of exhibits particular strengths. Uh, if you take a look at Denmark, they've been really leading the world in terms of renewable energy. Finland is, uh, is remarkable for its primary education system, and the Dutch have been very good in agriculture. Um, Switzerland, as you mentioned, the, the density of leading multinationals. So each of these countries has a particular strength. I think Israel was the only country to really replicate the Silicon Valley in terms of a startup scene. So, I, I think the first premise is that, um, you know, sort of demarking this myth that bigger is better, it just doesn't seem to be the case. So, what I just show here is this is a, a theori theoretical relationship between, say, per capita GDP and the size of a population. And, and if you expected a very close correlation between size and, and, and per capita, you, you'd expect this sort of diagram, but when you actually look at the data of 196 countries, which is the next slide, uh, oh, you overdid it, Michael. Sorry there, James, got it. <laughs> so if you, if on the right side, you actually look at the actual data, it has a correlation of basically zero, which is random, which, which suggests that there is no relationship between size and per capita GDP. And if you look at other metrics, it's, it's, it's very similar. So for example, Singapore spends the least amount of money in education, but it has the best ranking system among the OECD countries. So, um, you know, there's this sort of myth that more means better um, just doesn't hold up under analysis. And then what you do see is that you see these, these sort of outliers, these upper left quadrant countries, and, and those are the ones that I focused on. I mean, the whole purpose of the exercise was to try to understand uh, you know, why these countries were successful. Um, and, and that's what the, the book really focused on. Um, so the next slide. 
and, and here's what you see that if you, if you look at these countries, we, we call them the S8 um, compared to the G20. They have more than two times the level of competitiveness across you know, 200 variables, um, but they just don't have the voice. So if you go to events like the IMF or the World Bank or Davos, you just don't see people on the podium for these countries. So you have this relatively large disparity between achievement and voice. And then the other thing is that if you look at the trajectory over time, um, these, these countries are improving and the large countries are struggling. And, and the point is, if you, I think that the, one of the major overarching theses is that economic power is decoupled from size. And you, you can see that in you know, company on the, at the level of company, like companies like Nestle or Roche or AP Milimersk or um, Nova Nordisk. Um, you know, the, there's just um, the traditional relationship between power and size is, is broken down. I think the other thing that you see with these countries is that if you, if you took, take a look at sort of the typical Anglo-Saxon countries, you have this kind of confrontational relationship between right and left and the right saying that, you know, why should you let the government do anything? It, it mucks it up. And then on, on the left, people are saying, well, you know, if, if the markets are, markets are left to, to their own devices, it always ends up in tears and, and anyway, they can't deal with these common goods like education, climate, healthcare. And the truth is, to some extent, both of them are right, and, and what you end up having is a situation where they're just throwing bricks back and forth at each other. And, and what you find in these countries that are very successful is that they have a different order, what I call the new order, which is they're advocating more markets but better government. And and there's just no way there's no way of getting around the fact that you know things like roads, infrastructure, climate, healthcare, uh, it's it's just impossible to do that without a proper functioning government. Next one. Yeah. What else you see with these countries that one of the key components is that they have high degrees of social trust. And it's probably the highest correlating factor among all the attributes is if they have a high degree of social cohesion, there's a very clear relationship between that and the GDP and disposable income. So again, if you see the the upper right um, side of this, this this analysis, you see the same countries appearing over and over again. And I think you see with the pandemic, exactly, those are the sort of countries that managed to respond best, including Germany, which is a, has a high degree of trust and, and has been quite effective as a, as a large country dealing with the pandemic. I think the other thing is that they're they're very good at uh, you. You have this sort of so-called marshmallow test, which which probably anyone who's listening who's a parent knows that this idea that a child, if he's able to postpone gratification, that that translates into long-term positive aspects concerning their development. And and so societies at the, at the level of society, we have a similar situation, whether it's you know, debt or climate or pensions or inequality. These are very slow-evolving not particularly urgent problems, but they're very important problems. And those societies which are able to deal with these slow developing problems, um, I, I think increasingly will become, you know, will determine the success and, and particularly the resilience. 
And, and by the way, there's all sorts of data in the book. To, I, mean, I, I was given a 20-minute framework to, to do this presentation, um, but there's there's all sorts of analysis to support what I just said. Um, and and now I just give you a couple of examples of, of sort of specific countries what they what they've done. So in the 1970s, Copenhagen and Denmark they they decided to uh, actually they realized that. that Actually, urban planning was really a function of cars. So the more cars you had, the wider the streets were, the, the more garages, uh, more elevators, um, uh, more traffic, more pollution. Um, and, and they realized that if you really wanted to get away from that, you had to get cars out of the city. And they created incentives to replace cars with bicycles. There's now more bicycles, 60% of the people. Uh, who work in, in Copenhagen drive to work with a bicycle. The lights are synchronized for bicycles, so they have a they have a priority over cars. They have a priority over over uh, pedestrians. Uh, and you see a picture on the left of a particular part of um, Copenhagen, and then you see it today. And and I, I think what they really just discovered was that life occurs at three kilometers an hour, and and that that was something that. Um, was you know it seems very novel, uh, sort of very intuitive, but it, it took them to do that, and now you have cities like Melbourne, other places around the world that are replicating this um, this approach. Uh, so this is a town in Slowly, Netherlands. This is actual roads that they're producing now. They're they're producing the roads based on recycled plastic bottles. Um, they're cheaper. They last longer. Uh, and course environmentally much more friendly and again this is not just a, a concept it's in use today and happening I, I think you can just skip that Michael uh, go back yep sorry there got it so this is a, a recent law passed by New Zealand where it's called naked produce and they prevent the sale of uh, fruit or vegetables in grocery stores if it's wrapped in plastic. So it's quite a simple procedure, but it's a very effective one. Um, and of course, a pretty big problem that we're facing worldwide. Next one. So here, here you see the, the development of healthcare costs, which of course is a huge problem and, and a growing problem largely driven by demographics. Um, you know, we're living now, you know, the, the idea of living to be 100 years old probably 10 years ago was a, a possibility, but now it's becoming a, a likelihood. Um, and someone who's 80 years old, it costs about 15 times more per year to treat someone who's 80 than someone who's 15. So you can see the leverage factor of age with, with healthcare costs. Um, in the case of the U.S., it's now up to about 18%, which is the largest um, expense in the economy. Singapore, which is the, the star at the bottom, is about 4% of GDP. So it's about one-fourth of the cost of the U.S. system. It's about um, 30, 30 35% of the NHS system. And they have superior outcomes. So if you look at all the kind of key metrics in determining how good a healthcare system is, the, the Singaporean system actually does better. So those are huge cost savings. These, these are not, you know, sort of marginal things. This is a big deal. And of course, as as populations get older, this will become um, more and more important to, to come to grips with. 
So I just, uh, before you click the button, so th this is just a quick 30 second chart. It just shows you, uh, no, you go back to the mic, it's fine. It's actually a short video. It, it just, just shows you how ephemeral um, borders are, political boundaries, etc. So it starts at 1400, which is when actually Switzerland was created. Can, can you push the button? It's, you, you can see this on YouTube, by the way, if you want to, there's a longer version of this, but just, just to give you an idea of, of you know, over the last um, 600 years, just, just how frequently borders, political boundaries and borders have changed. You know, we, we have this impression that, um, that borders are rigid and permanent, but um, the truth is that they're, they're actually not. So, and the next one. So, in the, in the case you see on the left, um, this is the case of, of Scandinavia. This is actually Denmark um, during the 15th century when it controlled this, this entire area of Scandinavia and northern Germany, also Iceland. And, and now it's, it's even this, this orange part, it's just, it's just that one particular peninsula. It's only a fraction of the orange part. So I think it's about 5% of the territory that they once controlled. And in the case on the right, that was the British Empire in about 1911, which was the sort of apex of their control. And, and you know, as you now see, it's just, it's really, the, it became the Commonwealth, then it became the United Kingdom. And, you know, who would have thought five or 10 years ago that people would, that Ireland might, um, Northern Ireland might, might consider sort of uniting with Ireland. Um, so the, these things do happen. So downsizing is not uh, is, is not um, exceptional. And I, and I think you know. I think the, the the point I was trying to make in the book is that I, I think we're really at the cusp of some pretty serious sort of problems that we have to deal with in the next generation, and that these societies will all be stress tested, and um, we're having this one now, which is a pandemic. Um, but you know you have this uh, the whole global warming issue there there is not a plan B it's just one earth this point I was trying to make about healthcare, which I think is a huge problem um, we have reproduction rates which are you know you need 2.1 children per per woman in order to maintain an equilibrium there isn't a there isn't a developed society that is anywhere really close to that I mean some of the Scandinavian countries are about 1.8 but you have places like uh, Korea, which are less than 0.8, Japan um, below one, um, Singapore below one. You know, this is in, in one generation, you have 50% reduction of um, reproduction. So, you know, it doesn't take too many generations before you're extinct. Um, and then this, this whole point about information discovery, which, which we're all aware of, the, the fact that everyone who has a Twitter account or a social media account is a, is a publisher and just distinguishing between the noise and signal ratio, fake news, etc. Uh, the fact that money doesn't cost anything, it doesn't yield anything, um, what does that mean? Uh, we've had now over a decade where very low interest rates, which are, um, you know, the whole idea about modern sort of capitalism is based on this idea of Schumpeter of creative destruction where you, you know, it's actually quite healthy once in a while just like a pandemic to coal the economy and, and get rid of these zombie companies um, but you know we, we've been in this sort of mode of operation the last 
10 or 12 years where we're, we're just prolonging that more and more. And then, of course, you have this traditional argument about job security, AI, et cetera. You know, will we have enough jobs to, to retain people, et cetera? So these are all pretty important issues. And um, you know, the question arises, um, how does the nation deal with these? Do you have the right social contract? You know, are you sufficiently resilient to, to be able to adapt and cope to these things? So um, that was a bit, um, you know, I, one of the arguments of this book is that these nations that are uh, in these positions that I've described are in a better position to uh, respond to these things and, and adapt to these things. So we've started a new initiative called S8 Nations, and, and, and basically the idea is to bring together these small nations and, and to try to close this discrepancy between uh, achievement and voice. And we've, um, next slide. So this is the structure. We have these different countries. We have a, a head of, of each country, and then we have a very lean executive committee based in Switzerland. We have a not-for-profit organization, which has been established about a week ago. This is the example on the, on the left of, uh, of Netherlands, where we have you know, more or less, I'd say, Dutch knighthood. If, if there are any Dutch listening to this, they will go recognize the names. You have the uh, Feige Sesma, who, who turned around and built up DSM. You have Tom Swan, who's the chairman of ABN AMRO. You have Paul Pullman, who just recently left, uh, CEO of, um, of um, Unilever. Uh, Alexander Rittner Khan is one of the most influential politicians. Uh, Luis Fresco runs uh, Wagner University, which is the leading agricultural university in the world. And Rihanna Letcher runs um, Master University. So, just to give you an idea, we have similar delegations for other countries and um, yeah we think there's a uh, maybe the next slide uh, I think the we have some gathering some supporters right now and, and, and gathering some money to build a team and so far we have these these backers um, but I think the basic idea is that we think that, that there may, may be some lessons that you can learn from these, these success stories and Leading by example could be a good way of doing it. And, and given the state where we are of the, the large countries, uh, if you look at the G7, you know, you, you know the, the situation with the US with Trump and incredibly just divisive society. You have the situation in the UK with you've had the third prime minister in as many years. You know, Angela Merkel just stepped down, her successor was ousted. Italy doesn't even have a government, it's been dissolved. Um, popularity of, of Abe and Macron are in low teens. So to expect any sort of unequivocal, decisive leadership coming from these G7s yes. at this juncture is probably going to be pretty difficult. So that's that was a bit um, the thinking. So ask me in a, couple, a year or two um, how we get on, but that's, that's basically it. But I, I really do think we have to reimagine the world and then we really are confronted with uh, problems that are that we've never been had to deal with before, so we have to come up with with new solutions. And I think we can learn a lot from some of these smaller nations who are a bit more experimental. Uh, they're, they're, they're exposed to external forces, so they have to adapt to, to circumstances uh, because they're forced to. Um, and, and I think that uh, if you've heard, if you've sort of heard or learned about one or two things in this lecture that uh, you didn't know before, then probably there's a need to do the sort of thing we're doing. So that's, that's, um, 
that was sort of the, the impetus of the book and, and now for this initiative. So I, I don't know if I used too much time or too little time, but that's that's it, Michael. James Hardly, Hardly, you are absolutely perfect, absolutely spot on <laughs> to the minute. I, well I, done. I, I, yeah, you know, this is on my this this lecture was on my bucket list, so I rehearsed until two o'clock in the morning last night. <laughs> that was perfect timing. And having having been uh, with you in your flat uh, late at night, uh, this is unusual. <laughs> so congratulations, uh, James. We, you've lit up the board. We've got well uh, almost seventy people online. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to try and lead a discussion. I've got a number of questions coming in. Uh, I was intrigued at a couple of things. Uh, one was the the whole idea of a national marshmallow test. I seriously doubt any country over about 15 million that the prime minister could resist the marshmallow. And I'm certainly thinking of a few people at the moment, uh, uh, many of them looking like Pillsbury Doughboys, though I shouldn't talk. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, just a quick question for me. Uh, sure. Norway. Norway features heavily in the book at many points, and yet it doesn't make your essay. Yeah. Am, I reading, am I reading anything into that? Yeah, so I, you know, we get this. I get this question a lot: is is it's, it's all justified? The, you know, the truth is, Harper Collins told me the book could, could not exceed three hundred pages, just like we had to take some slides from this presentation today. So you know, inevitably you have to choose these countries, and, and lists could be different. But um, you know, Norway is interesting. I think there were two reasons why we I I decided not to include Norway, uh, besides the size constraint. One one was that. You know they had this um, this oil endowment, so they, you know I think the average money per person is like two hundred fifty thousand dollars that each person has as a result of the oil endowment. So um, you know it really skews the economy. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and, the uh, other eight really aren't endowed with natural resources. That's true. And, yeah, and the other ones are based on human resources, largely based on human resources. Um, and the second thing was we already had you know quite a number of Scandinavian countries, so I didn't want it to be too heavily skewed towards the the Scandinavian countries, but yeah, you know, I think there's, you know, there, there's a lot of examples of what. Maybe the other thing is that I, I looked at these countries like biological species. You know, everyone looks at these spreadsheets and, and there's hundred variables, and they say, well, you know, what's the rule of law and what's the score and what's the weighting, and you sort of tally it all up and you divide it by two hundred and you come up with a score. And, and uh, you know, there's there's sort of merit to that sort of analysis but i i think these countries are so they're so path dependent you know on their histories their cultures their geographical locations uh you know their, their ethnicities uh, you know look, look at finland between russia the russian empire the swedish empire and living in a very cold country and you know, maybe that's why they read 25 books per year on average which is more than any society right so um yeah. I, I think I, but, but, yeah. but the interesting what, the interesting thing was is that you know these are all you know there's different paths to Rome. So you you had uh, very old countries like Switzerland and Denmark. You had uh, very new countries like Israel and Singapore. You had you know a turnaround country like Ireland, which was you know kind of considered the armpit of Europe for a long time. Um, and and you have you know some of them Catholic, Lutheran, Confucian. Jewish, so, so you know, you, I think it's quite encouraging to see that there's, uh, you know, there, there's different ways to get there, and, and it's not this sort of, um, you know, waiver theory of Protestant uh, work ethic type of thing, right? I mean, there, there are different ways to be successful. Well, you you did stretch Harper Collins because, as I recall, it was 336 pages, but I will tell everybody it's a 
what James has uh, skimmed over in uh, 20 minutes is extremely well detailed and documented in the book with copious references and one of the best sets of quotations. But uh, James, to your point, there are many paths to Rome. Um, interesting here. Uh, Liz Thrussell would like to know what key areas what would be your priority, though, to start with? Sorry, sorry, what is again the question? What, what would be the key areas uh, as a, uh, what key areas would be your priority to start with if I'm trying to get to Rome? Ah, okay, yeah. So, I mean, what, so the, some of the common secret sauces, education system is, you know, foremost, having a really decent education, education system, which also is a, is a free option. So the idea of having private education doesn't really work in these societies and, and, and actually having a private system cohabitate with a public system is actually quite difficult if you think about it because if it's if the private system is successful it creams off the best teachers it creams off the best students and, and it creates it creates an incredible heterogeneity of, of, of possibilities because even within the private schools you have lots of different hierarchies so you know if you have 150 different avenues to education, you know, it's, it's not surprising that 30 years later you have this incredible inequality of people. So if you look at these, these, these countries that I mentioned, they, they all have a, a, the first 12 years is a common system, common social norms, common values, you know, and, and they, you know, the, the, the child from the baker goes to school with the, the, yeah. the child from a doctor. If you look at the, you know, the, the Prince of Denmark or the Queen of, of Holland, they, they go to the same public school. It's, it's yeah, and, and, you, and you open up, of course, with, you know, in the case of Switzerland, national service also being another binding agent and yeah, things. You know, very, the, the conscription service is, is incredibly important glue. I think especially given the fact that there's a lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these things that used to, used to create social cohesion, like uh, families, religion relationships to employers, the number of siblings. You know, if you have five siblings, you're, you tend to be much less selfish if you have just uh, one or now, a single child. Now, so, Bob, yeah. McDowell, Bob McDowell's dialing in from your next book. Uh, if this is small, he's micro. Uh, Bob uh, was the uh, former prime minister, head of policy, chairman of policy and resources, but technically sort of the prime minister for Alderney, which is an island with uh, 2,000 souls in the summertime. Um, and he asked, I think it, it, there's a subtlety to this question, James. Do these small jurisdictions have a better sense of self-awareness, yeah. self-awareness than the likes of the UK, France, and Germany, and other European countries? Yeah, no, I, I, th I, th I, think, he's, I think he's spot on. Um, and and I, I'm glad he points out also the, the, a very small country. I mean, we looked at Liechtenstein, for example, which has 40,000 residents. And it's a, it's a perfectly... A successful country and has its own hospital system, its own educational system, its own police force. It, it shares a customs with Switzerland. So you know, it really stretches the mind, your mind, to ask you, you know, what is the critical mass, right? If you, if you can have a country like Liechtenstein, with, I mean, I didn't study his country, but um, but you know, forty thousand is a pretty small. It's a pretty yeah. small number. Um, so well, in the case yeah, of Switzerland. You sort of talk about MPH, what meritocracy, pragmatism, but that big H, honesty. So the honesty about where you really are, where you stand, which I think a lot of countries we've, uh, there was a phrase going around a few weeks ago here in the United Kingdom, uh, something like led by science, manipulated by PR about COVID. So 
<laughs> this bit about being able to honestly state where things where things sit. Yeah, no, I, th I, you know, it's not like a, a genetic trait. The fact is, these countries tend to be export oriented because if you're, I don't know, a company in Liechtenstein or Switzerland, you know, if you're five employees, you have to start exporting. The markets, the small, the markets themselves are just too small. So once you start exporting, you get incredible feedback loops, and, and customers will tell you they they just won't buy your product if it's not good enough. So you, you know, you really have tentacles into the market. Um, yeah. Whereas large markets tend to be, you know, kind of more forgiving. Um, and I think, that, and I think the second thing is that, um, you know, that there's a because people the degrees of separation are so small. You, you know, this Dunbar ratio type of thing, where you know, you're actually seeing people. You're one phone call away or two phone call yeah. calls away from anyone. They actually yep. know their their MOP. And, and, and because of that, there's a lot of reciprocity. And all the studies show that it's the frequencies of dealing with people that determine trust. Because you, know, you just, if you only deal with a person once, you know, you, the, the, the temptation to cheat is pretty high. But if you see yeah, that yeah, every other it's day. Not, it's not trust, it's a calculation, or it's repeated yeah, transactions. It, it is. It's, um, it's, it's basically, it's, it's, I mean, David Hume and Adam Smith, with, you know, they yeah. started writing their economics work as, uh, you know, the theory of moral sentiments was a, uh, was a, a religious book and it was, it was based on social norms and the importance of the board's lining up with lots of examples richard moore was uh, views on monaco and andorra we, we could spend the day going through that but i'm going to stick to the s8 if i might um there's a specific uh just a very quick yes no sort of thing uh from alexander rengli uh from the swiss embassy he's asking do your s8 nations relate to the small advanced economies initiative which includes seven member economies. He, he thinks it's the same as the S8 minus Sweden. He's he's actually quite close, actually. Peter, you know, Sir Peter Gluckman, who uh, started that initiative uh, about 15 years ago, and unfortunately he stepped down because the, he was in the Conservative Party in New Zealand, and now it's gone to the Labour Party. And um, yeah, they, it, it's quite similar. He's right. Sweden is in our group, and New Zealand is not in our group. So it's it's, it's quite similar. This is. The problem with that initiative is nobody nobody knows about it because it was kind of a it was just for sort of mid-level government people okay. to to sort of exchange some information. So the so initiative it, is sort of complementary and trying to move that yeah. forward. Okay. No, no, so, Peter, so Peter Peter was part of our uh, research team, um, and actually we're in touch. We just spoke with them two weeks ago. So yeah. Okay. So we like. Zoe Leiden would like you to comment on what link did you find between these countries and the social safety nets? Very high, very high correlation. Um, because because they're export-oriented economies, they tend to be more volatile to, to economic cycles. And in order to have shock absorbers, you you, have, you know, there is a political need to have these stronger social contracts. So whether it's healthcare, whether it's education, whether it's pensions, uh, these countries have to. And I think that's one of the the, the arguments I'm making that given where we're heading. For these bumpy roads ahead, you know, it really helps to have a very robust social contract. And of course, this pandemic is is, is a classic uh, demonstration of that. Uh, I have the advantage of having read the book uh, and know that you do cover it, but it would wouldn't hurt. I think Stephen Murgatroyd would uh, like to ask you a question: Do you think that cultural individualism versus corporatism plays a role in the difference between the small countries and the large Western countries? And I know you touch on this quite a bit, but uh, maybe thirty seconds on that for Stephen. 
Yeah, no, I think it's I, the corporatism is is really a key aspect. You know, the ability to consider other perspectives, to consider workers, consider you know, shareholders, consider companies, etc., governments, etc. So there's a there's a there's a much more cooperative element. Almost all these countries, I think, with the exception of Singapore, have coalition-based governments as opposed as opposed to majoritarian sort of first past the post. And I think from an architectural point of view, that uh, that has considerable advantages. I mean, it, it also has certain disadvantages. But this idea, it's 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 really impossible to engage in long-term, you know, transformational type policy improvements. It takes 30 years to improve an educational system. So if you're not really, if you don't have people buying into that across all parties, and, and you know, it's, you're not going to get there. And so basically, what happens in the UK and the US, everybody talks about how great it is to have wonderful education, and then they or, or, or a new healthcare system, and then you know they, they they start doing it, and then four years or eight years later they get kicked out of office, and the successor then backpedals, and and, and you know for these big areas, uh, climate, education, healthcare, you really need to have a, a long term plan. You just can't wing it. There was a, there was one section of the book that uh, was extremely well written. You are you are a very talented writer. Uh, where you talked about three types of problems, and and yet I, I slightly disagreed with it. It was sort of implying that current economics doesn't work. Uh, one of my issues has been a lot of these long-term things. That's why we have long finance here here uh, at CN, uh, which you touch on debt, uh, green issues, health, education, and in fact, uh, in a longer book, I'm sure you talk about defense and warfare. Um, but these these very long long-term things, in my opinion, one of the greatest issues is getting a metric that has meaning today. You know, whatever metric you choose is so easily fudged that you can pick what you like. Uh, and Roy Vela sort of picked up on this. He says, how do we move from metrics for growth to metrics for sustainability? Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right, but I think they're out there. I mean, if you look at debt to GDP, you know, that's a pretty decent number you know, yeah. to, to look at sort of the whether you have your house in order on the fiscal side, right? You know, CO2 emissions is a, is a pretty decent metric to determine, you know, what, what, what your attitude is about the environment. Um, and, and PISA scores are, you know, so there are metrics out there that do it, but I, I completely agree with them and, and you that, you know, we are very much skewed towards short-termism and then things like, you know, things like, uh, you know, the capitalist system is based on ownership and ownership, shares and earnings and, and uh, earnings predictions for three months and, and having ETFs and, and if, you know, private equity funds, etc. There's, there's an incredible you know, emphasis on short-termism and, and probably what, you know, maybe between the lines, you know, we as societies have to sort of start, you know, tweaking the, the metrics to, to encourage longer-term behavior because these exactly these sorts of things I just described are pushing us towards very short-term um, considerations, and, and we see that, for example, in Switzerland, which is a, a bit of a laboratory because it has kind of multinationals, which have become very, you know, much in tune and geared, and sort of singing to the singing for their supper to the the, the analysts and to the you know the, the mutual funds, the ETFs, etc. And they they start behaving in a much more short-term manner than those than those Swiss companies like Roche. And Nestle, which have a much much more long term type orientation, so 
And if you look at the ownership of Danish companies, they're, they're mainly owned by foundations. So whether it's Carlsberg, whether it's Miller Mask, whether it's Lego, Nova Nordisk, they're owned by foundations, which are permanent owners. So they can have a, they can have a very relaxed long-term yeah. view. Same thing with Singapore, with Tamasek. So, you know, it's, it's exactly those societies which, which can actually compensate for this, uh, this excessive short-termism that I think is very important going forward. I want to move on to three areas in the very limited time available, but just quickly, uh, you may not know the answer to this, but Sean Taylor is curious that he thought a study recently had said uh, that life expectancy is dropping in sort of the major Western economies. Is that true of the S8 or do you know? No, no, it's it's, it's actually improving um, in the S8. Still. Okay. Um, and then uh, two yeah, things, things I'd like not, to look at. It's not all developed countries. Germany is doing quite well. I mean, the U.S. is struggling. Going forward, um, which was the you know kind of the rethinking we need to do. A couple of teasing questions here, if you don't mind. Um, Bob McDowell uh, is curious about okay, you know, how would you then recommend the UK, France, and Germany seek to emulate jurisdictions? And at the same time, Hugh Purser is asking, uh, can a similar analysis be applied to regions or cities of bigger economies? And, and while I'm sure the analysis can, you know. It's great. Here are these S8 outliers. They show what can be done. But unless I kind of want to take an atom bomb to my national structure, uh, is what what can I really learn? It's or do I need question. to take a bomb to my national structure? Yeah, no, no, it's a good question. I, I think I, I think let's say the low hanging fruit answer is that you can just find outstanding, exceptional examples of. Of public policies in each of these countries, and and just you know, I, I mentioned the Singapore healthcare system, for example. So instead of trying to take the whole tree, just just maybe examine the Singapore healthcare system and, and try to understand, you know, how they're able to do that. And we could talk about that if you like. Um, or in the case of Switzerland, they they passed a referendum which actually prevents the uh, the parliament from. Um, yeah, the debt, yeah. obligations on, on future generations and, and it's a very simple formula and it's also counter-cyclical so in the case recently with the, the pandemic they, they've spent more money so it's meant to be counter-cyclical but you know their their debt to gdp is 40 percent and is that a good thing and could could that be applicable elsewhere and we mentioned the new zealand um, example with, with plastic so there are a lot of individual examples like this that you could just sort of on a a la carte basic basis say hey this is this is really worth considering we why don't we do this and that's what progress was all about you know, if, you, if you think about your own life um, you know who I has a has a great cell phone now because they probably looked at the iPhone they looked at Samsung and they said hey this is a great product maybe we should try to replicate that and, and they've done that and, and that's no different uh, in, in any walk of life that's that's the, that's the genesis of any progress so, th so that would be, I would say, I'm fairly comfortable making that statement. Now, whether you can sort of in the aggregate, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm a bit, I think, uh, sort of a little bit more on, on thin ice in terms of trying to, because of the okay. comment I made about each each country being separate. But I, just I do think, okay. yeah, I, I, I do, I do think, as as the book argues, and and then I'll stop because I you have other questions, but. I do think this idea of decentralization is, is really valuable and, and devolving power to the individual and to the community as opposed to centralizing. You know, so I think Trump was absolutely right. Drain the swamp. And, and I think, you know, 
probably, for example, the U.S. needs to go back to what it was in the beginning under the, the sort of Virginian leadership of more Madison, federal. Washington, etc., where the where the states were much more uh, decentralized and, and, and in many ways autonomous uh, a federation in, in the way that say Switzerland is, which is a very decentralized. Uh, I mean, they absolutely detest anything uh, that's centralized and coming from Bern. There's a high degree of suspicion. Uh, with money that's uh, taxed from taxpayers and spent centrally. So I, I do think, and, and that's why Germany is quite successful, because Germany historically was a federation yeah. of principalities. And, and also, and, of course, the lender has persisted and, and all, yeah. Just, uh, I, I, I actually have lived in two of the countries you mentioned, Switzerland and Ireland, and uh, and my daughter lives in a third, the Netherlands, and I've worked in seven of the eight. In fact, the one I haven't worked in is, in is Finland, uh, which is the only one which doesn't have on our index a very strong financial center. Uh, just in 60 seconds, no more because of the time. Uh, any thoughts on why these small uh, jurisdictions seem to have, by international standards, thriving uh, financial centers? Well, they, they, they earn capital. They, they high disposable incomes, high levels of export. If you look at the average export ratios, a company, a country like Finland, probably has 80% exports uh, to GDP. If you compare that to the UK, it's maybe 14, 15%. So you, you know, the, through these exports and through this disposable income, you're accumulating savings. So if you look at the biggest pension funds in the world, it's not a surprise that ABP, PGGGM, in the Netherlands are among the biggest pension funds. The Danish pension fund system is one of the biggest. If you look at Tamasek and GIC. It's not a surprise that the, 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 among the largest sovereign wealth funds, it's 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 a it's a result of wealth accumulation, isn't it? And and with that, you have the disintermediation of the you know the savings to the investment side of the equation that um, that ensues. So it's it's a natural consequence. I mean, in the uh, case of Finland, I, I, it's a good question. I, I don't I haven't looked at the banking okay. system. So, yeah, I, I think it's probably deeper than banking personally, because a lot of them had these financial centers from a very early stage, long before they were large. I, I wonder if it's the very fact that the trust structures mean that you trust others to fund. And we could come on to that. My last point, um, if I may, we're, we're over time, but I, I'd love to keep going, um, is actually about community. Now, at Long Finance, we have a very uh, strong definition of community, an anthropological one. It's a group of people who are prepared to be indebted to one another. And one of the interesting things, of course, is that many of these countries take, for example, debt, and they look at the community, not just as those who are alive today, but those who will be alive. Uh, I'm always struck by Triodos, the bank in, uh, in Zeist in the Netherlands, where they have a cemetery right at the center of the bank, just to remind you what long-term investment is all about. That's one element. Uh, but another one, you, you quote Simon Cooper, who grew up in the Netherlands, saying, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, you won't get rich. But you won't need to either. In other words, you can count on your neighbors and things like that. And I, and I guess the, the final thing is uh, I remember, you know, an old joke in Ireland runs, you know, why did the sun never set on the British Empire? And the answer is because God doesn't trust the Brits in the dark. Um, and, you know, and, and the point there is it comes back to communities and trust. Now, in all of this uh, right sizing that you talk about, I would contend that I need to find an ideal community and that we seem to be struggling with that uh, around the world unrest on you know how much uh, of our community is inclusive in America at the moment uh, we've had the brexit vote 
Uh, we've got Catalan. Uh, and that's just in Europe. Uh, I, I won't even presume to talk about uh, many of the actions that are going on in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, for that matter. So in this uh, right-sizing and rethinking that you're talking about, do you agree it's community? But then community isn't isn't race. It isn't language, as Switzerland shows. It isn't, you know, how would you how would you examine that situation? What would the right size metric be in the long term? Well, I, you know, I, I think what's really important is a sense of belonging. And you know, Lee Kuan Yew said that, you know, he, he was asked before he died, I think the only thing that really worried him is if people stopped believing that Singapore as a nation, you know, kind of delivered value for citizens and, and people. So I, I think, you know, what's really important is, is not race and not ethnicity and, and not age and not gender, but, but people really feel that they belong to something. Is there, is there a common sense of identity? Because, you know, the, this idea of community, we, we, always, we always have this duality of kind of self-interest versus altruism. Uh, if, you, I mean, if you think about, I don't know, you're sitting at a big table with a big family, and who's going to take the last piece of cake? You know, everyone's very polite. And, oh, do you want it? Do you want it? And they're sort of stumbling over themselves to, to, not being, to not being seen selfish. And, you know, if you take a look at the, the case of the Netherlands, you know, they have this famous potter description. You know, every once a generation it's flooded because 60% of the land is underwater before, you know, before the technology was developed. So they had this, they had this system of communities where they all had to, out of necessity, collaborate with each other and, and kind of suspend their self-interest for a little bit in order to, to, to contribute to the community. And, and I, I named the book Too Small to Fail because one of the common elements, and I should have mentioned it earlier, is that there is a sense of vulnerability to these places. Uh, if you talk to a Finn, they're, they're still scared to death of the Russians. Um, you know, Singapore, Singapore was a, a fishing village 40 years ago. So there is a certain paranoia, there's a certain sense of uh, vulnerability. And I think that vulnerability is quite helpful to, you know, to create a, maybe a greater sense of humility. And of course, this pandemic is a, is a, is a huge reminder of that, that, uh, that there is some value in humility. And it's, it's precisely the leaders who weren't arrogant and, and were, were quite humble that, that reacted more quickly and more responsibly. So, yeah, I, I think we we got to get back to that. But I think I, I do think size and maybe common social norms. You know, it's it's very important to have common social norms. If you have if you have different identity groups with different kind of playbooks and, and different yeah. social norms, it's very tough to develop trust if one identity group has a has a, has a different way of valuing things versus another. And therefore, you do need this assimilation. And you know, part of this big race of racism problem that we're seeing. Okay. In the U.S. is the fact that these these cultures are not really assimilated. They, they have different identity groups, different social norms. That creates a huge amount of friction. And by the way, you see that also in Scandinavia with with refugees, etc. So it's 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 not uh, the, these are not angels in any way, but but they're they're having to cope with it as well. But I think what we're learning from this whole process is that it is important to assimilate these people, and that there's a common sense of belonging and a, and a, an occasional willingness to suspend self-interest in the interest of the community that creates that mm -hmm. cohesion which is necessary to have a robust and resilient society very good very good uh james i'll come back to you in just a second to thank you but just bear with me a moment if i might uh we ran uh, just a little bit over uh well a little bit over time and i noticed people trying to sneak questions in at 
uh, one minute to a quarter too. So folks, I get them in earlier next time. My apologies, I, I can't squeeze them all in in one minute. Um, it remains to me really uh, to again thank our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across anything to do with uh, technology, finance, and social purpose. So thank you very much. And I hope that many of you located in some of these jurisdictions feel uh, respected, admired, and noticed. Um, may I also thank our audience. Uh, without you, uh, there's no point in holding these things. Uh, I'd like to point out, if I might, that we've got, uh, as ever, a rich program ahead. And I, I would encourage you to uh, really just to go to the website. You know, the website is where it, where it is all at. Uh, you'll get a, a whole host of events coming forward. Uh, tomorrow is a fascinating one, a focus on Casablanca. Uh, strangely and much against uh, many things you might believe, uh, it does turn up very well as a focus on Africa as much as anything else. We'll be talking as well uh, later tomorrow on what's going on in employee share ownership and a fascinating event on Friday for all of you who've been wondering what does COVID-19 uh, mean for property and workplaces. Genuine hard research that started ahead of time. Uh, uh, from uh, Victoria Ward and Caitlin, who are going to be talking about that, and lot, lots published on that that you can view. Um, but James, uh, you know, it's great. Too small to fail uh, and slightly too big to fit into 300 pages, but fits into 336. Uh, a very, very good read. I, I, I genuinely commend this, folks. I, I enjoyed rereading it uh, in preparation for today. Uh, and so it was a, a very, very fresh and interesting and I would encourage you to, to, to go out and purchase it, not because uh, it will do much to anybody's bank balance, but because there's a good and deep message in there. James, I'm afraid uh, in this virtual world, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, they talk about leading without seeing. Well, you've been presenting without seeing. Uh, and so all I can do is give you a virtual hand clap um, on behalf of the audience who have clearly enjoyed uh, thank this. You, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael, thank you. for organizing it. Perhaps, perhaps we can have you back for an update on the S8 sometime. I'd like that. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to do that. Thank you for thinking of me and having me. Thank you. Okay, super right. stuff. And we'll see you all later. Take care, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.